welcome to What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. I'm Sandy Rice. Thank you to everyone who has been downloading the episodes. I hope you are getting some good information. Now, I have had many guests lined up in the past month, but in a bit of a bottleneck uh, right now with guests being available. So all, So stand by. All past episodes are on iTunes and Google Play and have good information. This week, though, a guest popped up with experience in discussing a very difficult topic, abortion and pro-life. The name of our episode is What About Us? And Are We Pro-Choice? To have him, I'm bending one of my own rules. I still have no political party affiliation on the podcast, but I had also promised not to have any political candidates or elected officials. But this is... So in full disclosure, um, my guest today is Christopher Hale, who is a candidate for U.S. Congress in District 4, Tennessee. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. All righty. So let's do a little, as we always do, a history of the topic, which is abortion. When I Googled it, um, I found pages and pages on Wikipedia. (laughs) And it's been around for thousands of years in all societies um, studied. In the U.S., it was estimated um, that um, between 1900 and 1973, 60 million abortions. It seems like abortion has been with us for a long time. Now, these are estimates because uh, there were a lot of back alley uh, abortions that that weren't reported. So estimates between 1900 and 1920 um, may be as much as 1 million abortions per year. Now, in 1920, there were some medical advances uh, with contraceptives not available to everybody. Um, So numbers may be a little bit more accurate. In 1936, I have a number of 400,000 per year, which is a a, a great decrease. But the problem was increased um, maternal mortality rate uh, because 20% of abortions were estimated to be done by uh, non-medically qualified people. And 30% were self-induced, so half, you know, not by uh, qualified positions. It was only 50%. So 50% whatever out there and 50% by physicians. In 1963, an estimate uh, was that 300,000 women uh, were hospitalized due to sepsis. I don't have a mortality rate for that. So a a big reason that Roe versus Wade was um, passed... um, in 1973, it was because of these medical uh, statistics that women were were dying. So um, um, one source even said that um, the Baptist group uh, supported it because they were seeing um, the ravages of illegal abortions affect um, on women in their community. In fact, they were giving um, sanctuary uh and, and care uh, to women that had, um, I guess, back alley uh, abortions. So in 1973, the Supreme Court passed Roe versus Wade, seven out of nine justices, because they were influenced by this medical data. And I want to write, uh, just quote a piece from the um, opinion. They felt that uh, the right to privacy in the Constitution included the right of a woman to decide whether to have children and the right of a woman and her doctor to make the decision without interference. Wow. I may read that again. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's part of the right to privacy um, for a woman to decide whether to have children and the right of a woman and her doctor to make the decision without interference. So that was passed in 1973. Um, I was in high school, so I've kind of been a, a woman the whole time that Roe versus Wade has been in effect. And of course, the opposition to it started on um, day one. It has not significantly reduced abortions. Contraception and family planning has not significantly reduced abortions. In 2017, there were 862,320 abortions in the United States. Um, between 2011 and 2019, there were 403 new abortion restrictions to make it more difficult to get abortions, uh, parental notification for minors, limits to public funding, mandated waiting periods and counseling, burdensome and unnecessary regulations on abortion facilities. And the biggest reason for all this is abortion has been politicized. A wedge, it's a wedge between people. Um, it's a threat to democracy. Politicians are making decisions, not physicians. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit later about the government in our health care and the history of that and why this this issue is so, um, I guess, um, difficult to understand. I'm going to go through real quick some statistics from Tennessee between 2010 and 2020. Um, in 2017, we had 12,140 uh, abortions in Tennessee. These may not be all state residents. They may have come from other states. But it was down 14% through 2014. We are only 1.4% of abortions in the United States. So one could say that we're doing pretty good. Could we do better? Restrictions in Tennessee, though, as of March 2020, there is a 24 to 48 hour waiting period. Um, consents have a lot of misinformation. Um, there's a, a lot of questioning of the moral code, and we're going to talk about some of the terms used to people that are uh, pro-life, anti-abortion. We also have parental consent. So... Um, and I can talk later about some things that are uh, in the legislature, legislature pending. But I'm going to let Chris talk for, for a while. But I wanted to set the stage for our discussion as far as the history, the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, um, and then uh, Tennessee. So we've got that all out of the way. So, Chris, tell us about the difference between anti-abortion and pro-life. Sure. And I think I want to acknowledge uh, a few uh, prerequisites that I want to come into this with. Um, number one, I acknowledge that as a man, a man without children, a man who is yet to be married, uh, that I have to act with humility and tremendous humility on this issue. And as someone who, want, who seeks your vote and seeks to support and seeks to be a public servant, um, I have to act with humility. What's so sad about this issue is that the majority, the vast majority of lawmakers who opened their mouth on this 
are uneducated and and men, um, and that the first experience of this is it should be um, should is a woman, and those experiences should lead the way, and those experiences and the data and the science should lead the way on this issue. The second nuance that I want to offer here is I do call myself pro-life. Um, I say I'm a Christian, um, and I believe that all life has dignity, um, but that the dignity of life does not end at birth. The dignity of life extends to life and through life itself. And um, and the third thing I want to, to acknowledge is that this issue brings up such um, high tensions between people, but oftentimes the folks who speak about it have no desire to, to make life easier for pregnant women, for children, and want to score political points on this. Mm-hmm. It's good for the political marketplace, the industry of politics, to, to, to use abortion as a wedge issue without any desire whatsoever to actually look at the life implications of the issue. So um, I want, but your question was pr- pretty simple. It is a question be anti-abortion and pro-life. Um, to me, the absurdity that the Republican Party, um, that many officials who oppose abortion rights can call themselves pro-life is absurd. Um, if you look, we're experiencing the coronavirus in this country. The amount of politicians who have said flat out that the the elderly are expendable in the name of the economy. Well, what's pro-life about that? The, is the, the dignity of an elderly person in Tennessee not have value, the same value that a child has? Um, so the the Republican Party and my, my opponent, Scott Desjardins, and, and Republican congressman, they are not pro-life. And Congressman Desjardins in particular, I'd argue, is not pro-life. And, um, and we, but we can go in around this question of what it means to be anti-abortion. Anti-abortion simply means that you oppose abortion and you, you dislike abortion. Um, but it does not in any way say that you have a, a notion of uh, life having dignity after birth. So I think for a lot of folks, to be anti-abortion is not to be pro-life. It means that life has dignity up to the moment of conception, but as soon as, as, soon as a child is born, Good God bless and good luck. And um, to me, that that is that is morally uh, repugnant. To to be pro life, we have to care about the child and the mother from the moment that child is born onward too. The moment of conception, which we want to, we've wanted to call that a child, sure, not a fetus or sure. um, whatever. And then even I think there was some discussion of counting that, you know, as a person, you know, in the census, which would be you know, determining our representatives and funding and, you know, payments and things like that. So you you want to do that, and then, you know, there's... When they are a person, I mean, when sure. they're living, independently of the womb, our lack of Medicaid expansion, that's it. Well, and what's remarkable about everything you just said there is, just think about this for a moment, the absurdity of politics... Um, the absurdity of using this as a, a wedge issue to drive up voter support. Um, it does nothing, nothing to to improve the life of the mother and, and a pregnant mother and her, her child to add it to the census. It does nothing to promote a culture of life to, to issue death certificates for abortion. All this is, all this is, is pure pageantry. It's mm-hmm. pure virtue signaling. It does nothing. Mm-hmm. It does nothing. But then when you ask elected officials to actually do something to help the life of pregnant women in this community, they don't show up. The best example I would give is let's talk about Medicaid expansion. You know, um, my undergrad was in economics. And I think what's really interesting is if you imagine just the baseline economics, you have a demand side 
and the supply side. And so oftentimes the obsession is on the supply side. Do everything you can within your power to limit the ability, uh, the, the supply of abortion services um, through criminalization, through through uh, bans, et cetera, through shutting down uh, clinics, et cetera. But that doesn't change the demand. The, the demand of abortion still exists. It's going to happen. Uh, Roe v. Wade did not come into existence until 1973. According to the statistics you had, in, in the early 20th century, we were having a million illegal all of them, illegal abortions a year in this country. Remember, abortion was illegal for 75 years in this country, uh, throughout this country. They still happen. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you're going to overturn Roe v. Wade and the angels are going to come down and eliminate abortion in this country is absurd. What you do is you is you, you uh, talk about the issues, the root issues of why people are seeking abortions in this community. And it's three. It's very clearly three. All the evidence shows that. It's health care. It, it, it's the economic life, and it's, it's the social support structures of the community. So on the healthcare aspect, if you want to reduce abortion in Tennessee, you expand Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And when I, and they, the federal government uh, mandated Medicaid expansion in the 2010 ACA bill. The Supreme Court said in 2012 it's up to the states. Right. 37 of 50 states had taken that option. Every one of those states has had lower decreases, has had higher decreasing uh, decreases of abortion than Tennessee has. The reason the abortions decreased in 2014 to true of 2018 was because the economic life of our country improved. Well, I can assure you, I, I promise you, 2020 will see a dramatic increase of abortions in the state of Tennessee. Um, women do women, pregnant women, especially women who have have. Um, uh, uh, non-traditional uh, familial situations or experiencing poverty or social d- dysfunction, they are going to seek abortions and it's going to happen. So we expand Medicaid, that will decrease abortions. Um, on the Medicaid coverage though, we should be really specific. Republic, uh, so politicians ought to say life begins at conception. If that's the case, shouldn't healthcare begin at conception too? Um, in New York State, uh, healthcare for Medicaid uh, for pregnant women begins at, in the first trimester. In our state, it's not till the second trimester, till very close to birth. Mm-hmm. I think that the prenatal, natal, and postnatal services from the moment of conception to two years on, two years, nine months, is a position that 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 everyone should be able to agree on. Um, it, it, those who oppose abortion rights, those who support them, should agree that pregnant women should be supported in the choices <laughs> they make. Let's give them health care. The second part, though, that we talked about is the edu- is the is the is the, is the um, economic function. We know that where where um, pregnant mothers are supported with jobs, with paid family leave. Um, we talked about France once uh, earlier, and France is an incredible situation. It's the most secular country on this planet, but they love their children mm-hmm. and they love their pregnant women. They 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 offer such generous benefits for for women having babies mm-hmm. um, and, and parents having babies uh, the the the, um, the parental leave is generous if you're pro-life shouldn't you support parental leave the ability mm-hmm. for families to be able to take care of a newborn it's 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 we know that everything shows us that the quality of the child's life is so determined by those first weeks and months and years and our government should assist in that um, that's something that Anyone from Planned Parenthood and the Catholic Church can agree. Planned Parenthood and the Catholic Church agree on this. There should be paid family leave. 
They, the grand, Planned Parenthood and the Catholic Church agree. And I'm using the Catholic Church as an example of uh, probably the most prominent institution that opposes abortion rights in this country and Planned Parenthood being the most prominent pro-abortion rights uh, community. So on opposite ends of the spectrums, they agree we should expand health care. They agree that we should expand paid family leave. They agree that we should fight for living wages. There, there's these The politicians who make this a marketplace issue to drive up votes don't work on those issues. They work on they work on these cultural aspersions to, to make this um, more polarized than it should be. And the last thing I want to talk about is social structures. And here's what I mean by that. There is nothing pro-life. And I, I, I say this as someone who is pro-life. There is nothing pro-life by a community, by an individual, by a familial, by a religious shaming of women who have abortions. Yes. Women, I say this as a Christian, women who have abortions are, 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 are children of God. They deserve our respect, our dignity, our help, our care, and any kind of societal shaming of women who have had the, who have had made the hor- horribly difficult choice to, to have an abortion they need to be. They need to be in the center place of our society and not shamed. They shouldn't be afraid to be be, be um, to be honest about their experiences. They shouldn't be afraid. There there are examples uh, of familial shaming, of job exclusion, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of community um, of community exclusion, and that is absurd. There is nothing pro life about this. So I'm giving you three areas that I think we should work on, which are our healthcare the economic and the social structures. And here's the thing about it. I think if you're listening to me today and you're an evangelical Christian and you think that life begins at conception, you can't disagree with me on those three points. And neither can someone who is the you know, the, um, who has, has spent significant time and energy pushing in a very difficult environment to support abortion rights for women in this country. I'm giving you three issues that hopefully we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to say, um, as far as... Uh, Name, I'm going to talk about name calling. Mm-hmm. Um, people uh, think call women that get abortions names. They think that they're kind of the lowest of the low, but many times they are mothers and maybe a single parent home or just in a financially um, challenged home. Their uh, their significant other may not be a good provider they've had children they have children they love children they just can't have another child you know right now they're they're mothers they're people you know they're women people that support pro-life pro-choice are called terrible names baby killers Mm -hmm. we're all baby killers we're all murderers i mean this happens in the in the state in our state capital well, I've never killed a baby. I've never thought about. It. I love children, sure. you know. And so, so what is that all about? That's just ridiculous. And um, one thing I'm going to add because I don't know where else to put it. We've said um, good economy, very great economy. We don't have one now, but a good economy to me is how I grew up, and that was my dad worked. He made a wage that supported my mother and I, and my mother worked in kind of the family business. But she had a lot of free time, so now all of a sudden a good economy is one where both parents are working their butts off. <laughs> sure. Well, and I want to go on that if I can. I think what's really interesting is, thank God we have two, uh, two parent working households that, 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 that it's not just men who participate in the marketplace, participate in society, participate in business and politics. Thank God. 
But it's also become a point of of, of a means in our capital society to say that, yes, we have two-parent households, but it's two parents 60 hours a week. Um, if, mm-hmm. if, if you have to work, we, we, we there's this really interesting notion, and I want to push back on it. That you know, working two jobs is noble. Well, God bless the parents who that who do that. But shame on us that we have a society that forces parents to do that to make a living for themselves and their family. And this is really important to me, um, as I understand my world and, and the world that we participate in. Um, we can never underestimate how much it matters for people to be able to provide for themselves and their families. And how deeply it destroys them when they cannot. Right. When we look at all the societal ills of this country, of this uh, nation that exists, they exist. We got. I love being in America. Thank God for being in Tennessee. But we can't acknowledge that there's some things that aren't working and don't aren't going well. So many of those can be resolved by economic stability and and having basic health care and having having safety. I think about example. If Sandra and I were in this room right now, we're in, we're in Franklin County, Tennessee, and the oxygen left the room, mm-hmm. we would no longer care about the well-being of each other. We'd be fighting for <laughs> oxygen. The ability for the ability to have a society of compassion and well-being is taken away when people can no longer breathe. And the economic situation for so many right now is we're grasping for breathe. air. We're grasping for air. And so, how can we how can we judge harshly? Uh, a, a woman who's made the most difficult choice of her life to, to, to choose to, to, to have an abortion. There's no, they aren't baby killers. Um, they're, they're, there's no, this is not reality. No one is. The biggest baby killer in this society is lack of health care. That kills babies. Yeah. The biggest kill, baby killer in this society is lack of good jobs and, and, and a lack of quality education, a lack of opportunity. The biggest baby killer's uh, in this society, are not the women who choose to have abortions, but the economic, social, and healthcare conditions of this community. Mm-hmm. That is the most anti-life. That is the culture of death. The culture of death in Tennessee is the the, the reality that we do not have healthcare in rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. That creates the culture of death. It, the blame does not lie with these women. The blame lies with our with the with our, our political, our, our, yeah, our our, our our politics and our policies. Um, I'm just going to I'm going to throw in one thing about healthcare in Tennessee is and the unresponsiveness of our elected officials in Nashville because the people of Tennessee have asked and asked and asked expand Medicaid expand Medicaid we 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 don't have healthcare now it's all linked to the jobs and if sure. you don't have a job which you're not going to have you don't have healthcare so we're going to have so many more uninsured uninsured but if you work for uh, a company, a small company, or um, a minimum wage job—you don't, ha- you don't have health care, so you're, so you're, um, you know, uninsured. And anyway, they asked the legislatures. I advocate for Medicaid expansion. What did we get? We got a Medicaid block grant that wasn't going to add one more person onto the rolls of the insured. It went all over the state. People testified. What did we get? We got like two changes in that. Now we're still waiting for that. We've waited since basically 2010. So um, we have we have a legislature and elected officials that don't respond to what the people want. 60% want Medicaid expansion. We can't get it. I'm going to go on to something um, about the ACA, 
uh, a lot of people were helped by the ACA, Obamacare. Did it work like it was supposed to? Well, not really, because it was um, before the current administration. It even then got some little nicks and cuts, even before it was out. You can't do this. You can't do that. We have to take that out. And Obama kind of you know, he wanted to get this legislation through, so he made some concessions there. But a big thing, and this was played over and over and said over and over again, I don't want the government in my health care. Mm-hmm. They wanted it between they wanted it between themselves and, and their doctors. They wanted no controls on it whatsoever. And if you weren't insured, too bad for you. Um, so now we have the abortion issue, anti-abortion. And boy, you got a politician, you got a lot of politicians right there in the middle of a woman's right to choose whether to have children and her doctor Mm -hmm. to make a decision. I mean, horribly, horribly. So what's the difference there? You know, what's the difference there? And then the other thing I've been reflecting on as I read about um, people upset because they, they feel the government is telling them whether they can work or not. I mean, they're like going to capitals and going to tattoo parlors with AK-47. AK-47, yeah. Okay. Um, it's not AR. No, it's AR-15. I learned that on yeah. a previous podcast. Yeah, it's AK-47 and AR-15s, yes. Lethal force um, for their rights to, you know, to, to open. But, you know, ladies, what's happening to us? Um, we, we can't decide. I'm a little beyond having to decide, but but I mean it says it right there: the right to privacy. Well, and so I, so I mean, how inconsistent is that? Well, what's 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 call what's call something out that's been hidden for reality? Republicans love big government; they really do. The, they the, say they don't; they oh, want small government. But here's also the honest truth, and this this is this is conceding even my own party. The conservatives. The reality of it is, is that if your party is in charge of the government, you love spending, because what you can do is you can use the levers of you government. love government. It's, yes, you can use the levers power of power. Loves government. I can you hear the switch of the Republican Party? I, until November seventh, twenty sixteen, they railed on the debt, and in the past four years, the the, the, the deficit has surged to astronomical uh, levels. The debt king became the president of the United States, and he continues life work of, of adding debt and bankrupting uh, a government. But here's something we we have to concede on this: is that that there is a fallacy of big government versus small government. This, this argument, I'm not a baby boomer. I don't mean to. I don't mean to trash on baby boomers. But this is the boomer frame of government: is it too big or too small? Here's the reality that really matters: does it work? Does our government work for its people? Um, and what's we for, the people? Yes. Well, I mean, it, the government is, is an institution of people and for people and by people. This is not me saying this isn't socialism. This is this is the Constitution. But uh, what what is remarkable to me is that the question must be: Does it work? Um, here, let me tell you. Let me tell you some hard truths. Um, farmers are the the mainstay of our community of the four congressional district where I, I'm running. About 40% of, of revenue for farmers in the state, that's a low estimate, come from direct checks from the federal government. Should we get the government out of agriculture? No, because government in participating in agriculture create, keeps prices low. It's a national security issue. If you can't access the supply chain 
Uh, thank God for that farmers are feeding American families in the context of this crisis. Thank God the government's investing in farmers to keep prices low. Well, let me tell you, just as important as what goes into your mouth when you eat every day is is the is is uh, the ability to take care of your body when it is ill and when you and you get older. I have a very fond family member who I will not name, but you can guess who is a Republican who has skepticism of government and healthcare. But I can assure you, he loves his Medicare right oh, now. Oh man, he does it because it, it's great. <laughs> it's great. I, I just took my 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 mother um just had just got on Medicare. My father's been on it for two years. They love it. They love it because yeah, it I just works. Have been on it. I could be your mom. There you go. <laughs> it, 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 well, it, 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 Medicare works because it, it, it's accepted everywhere. Doctors love Medicare. One of the things that's remarkable, and this is something that we're going to move towards. Let me be very honest with you. I could give, can I cuss on this? Am I allowed to say a bad word? Oh, sure. I could give a rat's ass about Blue Cross Blue Shield's executive pay. I don't want them to make another $8 million bonus. I don't want Cigna's CEOs to get rich because when they get oh, rich, pharmaceuticals get too. Yes, exactly. When they get rich, we get sick. And that is the remarkable thing is that these guys in silk suits, robbing limousines to work, um, they are they are milking on our our illness. Um, I care a lot more about you and your family's health, and um, I am fine. This country, I'll tell you the truth. This country will be fine without Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's okay. We will make it. We will be okay without Cigna and Aetna and these people that have spent their entire uh, uh, livelihood screwing you over, screwing your families over. Trust me, your doctors love Medicare. You know why? They know they're going to get paid. And they know they know that they're, they're, they, the government's not going to screw them over on checks and they're not going to take them to court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every doctor accepts Medicare because it works and you know, under if I if I win this election, if I continue my public service, uh, I assure you that Medicare is going to increase coverage because it will help our families. Okay, let's go back to pro pro sure. life. Yes, I'm never having a politician again. No, yes, <laughs> you can see that Chris has passion. Sorry, I apologize. No, you're fine. I'm I'm just I'm just giving you a hard time because you can take it, can't you? You, you get beat up a little bit, but I'm a puncher, so. Yeah, he's a puncher. Okay. What else could we do, Chris? I mean, um, this isn't working. This, all these restrictions, it's just, it's just hassling women. Mm-hmm. We're going against the law of the land, which is still Roe versus, Roe versus Wade, to give sure. a woman the right to privacy to make her own decisions. What could we do instead of spending all this energy opposing abortion? Well, what could what- we do... What other? This is my nursing theorist. Sure. Kind of Florence Nightingale. I'm gonna go Florence Nightingale on you as a nurse. Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War. She helped a lot of people because she put the patient in fresh air. And so other theorists. Um, my theorist that I that I did my uh, postgraduate work on said, well, you expanded on that and said, okay, you got the patient there. You can't make them do something. Sure. What can you do? All these things, you know, I'm twinkling my fingers around my other hand. Can you teach them? Uh, can you work with their family? Can you uh, predict things? Can you get them a better home? Can you get them better nutrition? You know, all these things. You can't make a person do what they don't want to do. I've spent 44 years in nursing, and sure. I know that. <laughs> so what else could we do? The woman is pregnant. She's desperate. She's got no money. 
She needs health care. We've covered that. What else could we do either to help her or to help other teenagers? You know, being a teenager in grade, no. you've got all these hormones. You want to look good for the boys. Mm-hmm. You want to be loved and protected. And you don't have a good job. You don't have health insurance. And there you go. You're pregnant. Sure. Well, I think that what my, 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 my big answer to this is that we need comprehensive sex education. Um, and it's, it, it does, one thing that's really important to understand about this, it is not, it is not in any way um, uh, to the detriment of a young person to learn the truth. The Gospel of John tells us that the truth will set us free. And don't we want our children to be free to understand reality? Um, comprehensive sex education is a tool of, uh, of, of enlightenment, of thoughtfulness. It's a tool of life, of being pro-life. It, it's comprehensive sex ed. But I want to go back to your analogy and just frame this. Let's go. I am not a nurse, um, but I want to. I I, I I count myself a joyful warrior. So let's use a war metaphor in this capacity, in the nursing capacity. Um, if there is a nurse who's on the battlefield and she has a patient on the battlefield and that patient has a fatal gunshot wound to the heart. The nurse is not going to preach to the patient about his high cholesterol level. She is going to treat the wound. If if you hear of solutions that are not treating the wound about cholesterol issues, and here's some cholesterol issues around abortion. Cholesterol issues are are issuing death certificates for fetuses. Cholesterol issues are adding fetuses to uh, census counts. Uh, nonsense. It doesn't do a damn thing to promote the culture of life. Heart issues, fatal issues, are what we've talked about. Um, it, we know this to be the fact that it is health care. It is, it is the access to the economy. It is social structures. But I want to go even further in this. It's standing up against the falsehoods we have we are too nice we are we are too bourgeois in letting nonsense just flow to the top we have to start speaking the truth and we have to start calling out nonsense and i think that part of that's going to be uh being a bit prickly Um, we need some fighters who say you know congressman uh state representative senator you say you're pro-life why, why are you doing this? Right. Well, and some other nonsense that I mentioned earlier, um, this 24 to 48 hour waiting period. So, you know, again, anti-woman, she can't make up her mind. You don't think she's thought about it and sought counsel, but, but, you, but you're saying, well, well, maybe not. She needs to go. She needs to take a trip, child care, transportation, blah, blah, blah and talk to somebody about an abortion, which she's made a decision on, but then she, she's told to wait. I mean... Well, I'm not going to use any um, well, other man analogies, but yeah, that ain't going to fly. <laughs> well, and I think unless you're a woman, we feel like we can ask a woman. Oh, no, honey, you, sweetie, you don't know what you want. You go home and think about it for if, a day or two, and then make all these arrangements to come out. That's nonsense. If men could get pregnant in this country, if God gave men the ability to get pregnant, you could get an abortion at every ATM. I can assure you that if men were to get pregnant, you would get an abortion at every ATM. We have to acknowledge that the way this issue is framed is anti-woman. Look, here's the reality of it. If if someone has shown up to the abortion clinic, 48 hours ain't going to change a thing except, except, except put them more at risk. Put them more at risk. The You have to confront this 
at the at the heart issues, the fatal issues. It's too late. It's too late. It's, it's something something that we have to acknowledge this too. I, I'm a Democrat, and I understand we had to. I think Democrats have to speak more eloquently on this. But we no no one is celebrating abortion. Right. It's right. not some great thing that's happening. Like we have, I think we have to concede. As as I have to concede as a Democrat, and I think people have to concede something has gone wrong. Something mm-hmm. has gone wrong. This is not. It's not a trip to the dentist. It's not. You know, like this is mm-hmm. not. I, no one's walking out with a sticker saying "Smile, I got a procedure today." It's not like it's something has gone wrong. But what I think the vast majority of politicians do is it is great. It's like immigration. Like the vast majority of politicians don't want to solve immigration. They don't want to solve abortion because it revs up numbers. You it got, does. It does. You got to understand the day I announce for office. Do you understand the payday loan industries uh, of campaign vendors come knocking at the door? There is a pe- there is a, a cottage industry of outrage. It's great for business. We it, 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 corporate. You know, I've, I've worked in media. Corporate media loves outrage. It's great for business, and so you can I can assure you that there are not problem solvers on this issue. I want to be one. But we're going to have to start calling out the nonsense and fighting for things that matter. Yeah, and don't call me a baby killer. Exactly, exactly. Well, we've got all hepped up on this. Sure. I'm going to have to redo my um, introduction because I think I said, are we pro-choice? It's what about us? Are we pro-life? Sure, that might be, that. yeah. Well, I I just, I I don't know what I said now. I think (laughs) think if I can end on one thing I want to say is that being the the word pro life is used as a political weapon, but man, it is something I don't think that people should concede on too quickly. Who isn't pro life? Uh-huh. Who doesn't support life? And why would why would why would a movement let a narrow movement that seems to be so anti life have that misnomer and use it for political purposes and political capital? I am pro life. But but I think that word has high value, high um, I would say a high degree of responsibility, and you certainly cannot claim it unless you practice it. And those who claim it, who are against healthcare or against rural jobs, against uh, living wages, they aren't pro-life. And I'm going to call them out on it because yeah. we have to. Yeah, they're anti-abortion, so they're anti-abortion. Sure, is what they're saying they want. Sure. To, and it's and the other thing about. Uh, it's a single issue, and so you don't have to uh, think about anything else or keep track of anything else. If you say, "Well, I, you know, I'm not voting for that person because," or "I vote for this person because he's looking after, you know, the babies, you know, the unborn," and I can certainly, you know, uh, yeah, that's that's fine. But you got to look at other things, you know, um, Chris. And I always have a little action plan um, for people not just to listen, but but to do. And um, one of them is always think, just just think. And what I try to do with these podcasts is give people enough information, maybe some little little snippets of a, a statistic, who can remember those, but a thought that they can carry with them and they can talk to other people, give them some, some things to, to think about. We have to be thinking. We have to take what we hear and say what mm-hmm. and we have to do that at all levels our our personal um spirituality our, our for our brains for our family for our children um 
and who we elect as leaders because we need we need we're going to need stronger and stronger leaders we're in a heck of a mess right sure. now absolutely we're in a heck of a mess and how are we going to get out of this and uh be you know um a good community the type of america that that and the american values and the christian values that you know that we want to be so so I always encourage people to see what their uh, elected officials, uh, you know, are doing and saying and, and to question them. So I always ask people to write, you know, their congressman, um, and, and that's, um, that's still good, and uh, meeting with them. Here in District 4 in Franklin County, we're not that far from Nashville, and um, we can go up there and, and get in and, and, and talk to our people. We just have to do it and not cower and give up. Well, so and, and go ahead. I mean, oh, and then I was just going to say if, if there's any uh, if there's other action plans that we could pass along. Well, I think the big thing I would say is that you we underestimate deeply. And they, 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 the Christians use the phrase "fear of God," which is actually a good thing. But we <laughs> underestimate the fear of the voters and the uh-huh. fear of the movements that elected officials have. They don't like. They don't like the visuals of 15 people from their community standing up at the door protesting what they're doing, and they will respond. Mm-hmm. It scares the hell out of them, and it should. And so we we can be nice and kind, et cetera, but we should also use the force of our, our political power. You have constitutional power. The Constitution, the, the most important word the Constitution gives is citizen. We were the first country in the world that bestowed upon this sacred honor of the word citizen in a modern context, and we need to use that. Um, elected officials will only listen to those who show up. Um, your murmur- Facebook groups are great, but you murmuring on the Facebook group isn't going to make a lick of difference. Uh, you yelling at strangers on Facebook ain't going to do it. But you, you putting your boots on and going out to Nashville and going out to Janice Bowling's office and Iris Rudder's office, it does make a difference because – these people, give them credit, they got elected. They can count votes. Mm-hmm. And so if they see, see wins going in a different direction, if they are self-serving, um, and, and I mean this in a self-respectful way, if they're if they're self-serving and understand that the goal is to get reelected, they're going to have to listen. Yeah, yeah. So so get out there, yes, folks. I'm also going to uh, do a website, Capital with an O, C-A-P-I-T-O-L. The O is like the... Rotunda. There you go. Yes. <laughs> dot tn dot gov. This is a little homework assignment, but go there, find your legislators, and then uh, look at their bills and you know search uh, anti-abortion, uh, pro-choice, pro-life, and see what the bills are and where they um, are. If the legislature is going back in June, they yeah. cleaned it, uh, cleaned it all up. There's a couple. Things that are pending, there is a sex education bill uh, for um, area school districts, I believe it is, who have uh, higher than uh, what's satisfactory uh, pregnancies. Um, they're wanting to call pregnancy a pre-existing condition in another bill. Um, and there's one, um, I can give you this, practice with this one, House Bill. 2039 or Senate Bill 1902. You don't have to search a lot. You just put those numbers in, and I'll put this on the little byline on the on the podcast. SB 1902 
HB 2039. It's asking TenCare to extend medical assistance to 12 months after birth. Yes, it's a good start. Yeah, so, so look at that and see where it's going and just kind of play around with that because that's how you know what's going on. Don't don't wait for the Tennessean or the Chattanooga Times Free Press or the New York Times. We, we tend to get in the New York Times. Yes, the New York Times than... come that's rural Tennessee. Something's gone wrong. They come to Nashville, <laughs> something's gone wrong. <laughs> So anyway, thanks so much, Chris. And, Thank you for and having wish, me. And, and we wish you luck in, in, um, in your campaign. And um, all right, we'll see the listeners next time. Bye-bye.